Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello and welcome back to the CER podcast in 2017. Today I'll be talking to a recurring guest on the CER podcast, Senior Research Fellow here at the Center for European Reform, Rem Kortewech. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. So in our last episode of the CER podcast, we were looking back at the year 2016 and I think Everyone made quite an effort to find something positive to say, to remain optimistic about the year 2017. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, you should. It's on the CER website. So I was a bit hesitant initially to start off 2017 with a topic that many do not exactly feel upbeat about, I'd say, this year. Because, Rem, what are we going to talk about today? Well, what I hope we're going to talk about is the future of U.S. trade policy under President Trump and what this means for the prospect of the TTIP negotiations that have been going on for the past three years, but which look very troubled, to use a, uh, an understatement. It was accepted wisdom, I think, by the end of last year that the election of Donald Trump meant the death of TTIP, of the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. But Rem convinced me that there's more to talk about here, that in 2017, there are more questions that we need to ask on this issue. And so I thought we'd bring back a trusted CER podcast format today, the five questions on trade, TTIP and Trump with Rem Kortebeck. With the caveat that Donald Trump, of course, has not yet taken office. In fact, at the time of recording this, we have one week left to go until inauguration. From what we know so far, what will Trump's trade policy look like? So... What we have to go by are Trump's comments during the uh, election campaign and particularly his picks for senior trade positions. Um, and by all means, it looks like Trump is continuing the trend that he uh, started during his election campaign, namely that he is very skeptical of trade agreements, can be described as a mercantilist and has stacked his team with a number of protectionists. People that um, have made a point out of using uh, either punitive tariffs or using taxes to get rid of some of the excesses of, uh, of, of, of trade liberalization. So from a free trading perspective, this doesn't look good. And here we get to some of the thinking in the Trump team regarding trade. And again, with a grain of salt, um, generally, I think you can say that Donald Trump thinks that exports are good because they create jobs in the United States and imports are bad because they destroy jobs. And in that very simplistic view of global trade, he believes that a trade surplus is good and a trade deficit is bad. And so he will be primarily interested in signing trade deals with countries with which the United States already has a trade surplus. So I think generally, I think you can say that Trump sees the trade world through win-lose terms. He doesn't see trade very much as a win-win situation where both sides can get out of an agreement in a better place. Um, he doesn't see trade as a strategic tool of foreign policy in the way that President Obama did. So for the moment, I, I, I I don't think it looks good. I don't think it looks good for the future prospects of big um, regional trade agreements. That's a great setup for my second question. When you say it doesn't look good from a European perspective, does this really mean the end of TTIP then? Can Donald Trump single-handedly stop that deal? 
Donald Trump can single-handedly stop that deal if he decides to withdraw from the talks. But I'm pretty sure that the European Union won't let it come to that and that there will simply not be another round of talks for a while. And this is basically what the EU Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström said uh, uh, several days after Trump was elected and that his election means that TTIP would be put, quote, into the freezer for some time. I, but I think one point should be made with respect to TTIP because it's very easy to look at Trump and to see Trump as the reason why TTIP won't move forward. Uh, but in fact, I think TTIP was already in trouble well before Trump was elected president. Um, and that those problems have to do with developments on the European continent uh, or in Europe. I mean, after Brexit, uh, TTIP already was a very uncertain proposition. Um, because the UK, of course, has been the strongest proponent for TTIP inside the uh, European Union. The French and, and, and German left have uh, been very critical of, of, of TTIP. Um, and so bringing it together, I would say that both the developments that we've seen in the European Union, as well as on the other side of the Atlantic, mean that it's unlikely that the talks will continue anytime soon. But we have to be aware of one important thing, and that is that uh, trade deals never die. They simply go into hibernation, waiting for circumstances to improve again. And so I think it's too early to write a eulogy about TTIP. And I'm quite convinced that at some point in the future, when that will be is still unknown, but at some point, uh, U.S. and European leaders will come together and say that it makes sense to try to remove some of the trade barriers that exist between the two economies. I'm pretty sure they won't call it TTIP, though. You were talking about the European responsibilities in all of this and that perhaps mistakes were made on our side of the Atlantic as well. Um, looking forward, can European governments save TTIP or whatever it will be called in the future and how could they be doing this? I don't think it's inconceivable that uh, at some point in the future even people around Trump will come to realize well it makes sense to try to bring the two largest economies of the world the EU and the US together to set trade rules and norms, labor standards on environmental standards or health standards or even on investment protection. So that's my first point. Secondly, if that's done, let's say in a future scenario that Trump or a future US president decides it's a good thing to continue with a TTIP 2.0. That doesn't solve the problem because Europe, Europe more than the United States, has been a problem on moving TTIP forward. Let's not forget that it was the French and German politicians that really questioned the rationale for continuing the talks. Let's not forget that it was in Europe that we had a near-death experience with the Canadian-EU uh, free trade agreement that almost collapsed because it was the Walloon parliament that almost blocked um, uh, the provisional application. This had nothing to do with uh, a U.S. position, but everything to do with a increasing trade skeptic approach in uh, in national capitals. And to a, a, a significant degree, this is something that European governments have been um, uh, unable to, to, to manage. First of all, European governments have, have failed to take ownership of a deal between the United States and the European Union and make a convincing case to skeptical publics. And failing to take ownership has meant that European national governments have basically led, uh, pointed to the Commission to do the selling of TTIP. 
Now, in a context where you have increasing Euroscepticism and increasing suspicion of, um, quote, unaccountable Eurocrats, um, this doesn't make a very appetizing proposition. Now, secondly, with respect to selling TTIP, what governments have been saying is the wrong thing. They have been saying, while anti-TTIP lobbies have been getting traction in the public debate, they have been telling publics, wait, trust us. We know what we are doing. We can't tell you yet about what we're discussing and what we're agreeing with the United States, but just hang on. Now that has worked like a red flag to a bull. It has in fact backfired if you look at um, the, the general trend of public support for TTIP. Anti-TTIP groups in the EU have been able to rally skeptical publics around the idea that TTIP would undermine a government's ability to legislate on health and environmental issues and force uh, the, uh, the consumption or the European consumption of chlorinated chicken or the introduction of genetically modified organisms in the European food chain. Rather than engaging with the criticism, what European governments have too often done is to point it to the direct monetary benefits of TTIP. And faced with emotional or sort of social criticism, monetary arguments don't work. Um, so we, the governments need to come up with a different, uh, a different strategy. And finally, with respect to this investment protection clause, which has become such a controversial issue, both in TTIP as well as in the Canada-EU trade agreement, it is really worth having a public debate about whether an investment protection clause is necessary between the United States and the European Union. Now, I can, I can understand some of the foreign policy rationale why you want to have investment protection, but given that it's so controversial and able to torpedo the deal in its entirety, it is worth thinking about whether it would not be a shame if we throw away the baby and the bathwater and whether we can just get rid of investment protection and then save TTIP in its broadest form. Well, there you go. I hope that um, political advisors in Europe are listening to the CER podcast because you've just given them the action points to save the agreement, I think. Um, that was the long-term perspective. Let's reel it back in a little bit yeah. and talk about the strategic consequences of TTIP halting mm -hmm. for the transatlantic relationship. So I think this is a really important issue because many people will think, well, okay, TTIP doesn't happen. Fine, we can go back to the status quo ante. Uh, doesn't matter. In fact, people will say, look, there is already a trillion dollar trade going on between the EU and the US. Why do we actually need a trade deal? And that trade will continue, investment will continue, TTIP isn't that necessary. Um, but I fundamentally believe that a pause or even a potential cancellation of TTIP comes at a real foreign policy cost. Um, first of all, uh, without TTIP, you won't get the immediate economic benefit of a sh uh, sort of an economic shot in the arm to the EU and, and, and US economies. And we all know the precarious state of the, of the Eurozone. So even a, a minor <laughs> boost to GDP would already be very welcome. Um, but more importantly, what you don't get if you don't have TTIP is you don't get this push on setting international trade standards and international trade norms. You don't get an international agreement on access to US energy supplies and you'll still be, uh, as European consumers, still be um, 
at the whims of, uh, of a U.S. Congress that might become more protectionist. Um, but most importantly, without TTIP, you don't get a boost to the transatlantic relationship at a time when that relationship is already under duress. I mean, in previous podcasts, you've already referred to the difficulties that uh, NATO potentially confronts uh, as a result of a Trump presidency. And um, by doing something big and global like TTIP, the transatlantic partners are able to uh, show to each other that they're still committed to working together and to, 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 to lead on something as important as the future of the global economic order. Mm, okay, I want to keep talking about this, but this is the five question format, mm. so we're at the final question. Um, the UK perspective, Boris Johnson has just been to DC to get reassurances about the special relationship between the UK and the United States from Donald Trump. And politicians here in London, I think, feel hopeful about Trump's comment that the UK will finally be back at the front, so to say, of the queue for a trade agreement. What does Trump's trade stance really mean for the UK? Well, I think for um, Theresa May, it's very welcome to hear that uh, the Trump presidency would like to uh, initiate discussions about a US-UK bilateral FTA. Um, and I think symbolically, this, this helps present uh, an image to the world that the UK uh, has options, even if it should uh, decide to, to, to leave the single market. Um, but I think we also need to be realistic about what this would mean and in, and in what time frame. A US-UK bilateral FTA will take time. It will take time to negotiate because there are a lot of tough decisions that each individual uh, government will have to make, whether it's about tariffs or whether it's about market access or, or about rules of origin. But most importantly, is that a US trade advisor to Trump will say, before we strike a deal with the United Kingdom, perhaps it's worth finding out what type of access a US investor in the British economy will have in terms of selling also into the broader European market, which is bigger. And so the outcome of any US-UK uh, trade discussions will be dependent on the outcome of the UK-EU trade discussions. And we all know um, that that can take several years. And so I would be highly suspicious of any deal that is struck before that, that doesn't take uh, into account whatever the UK and the EU come up with. Secondly, if you are sitting in London, um, be careful what you wish for. The US under Trump will take a very strong mercantilist approach also to any trade deals and trade talks with the United Kingdom. They will try to unpick parts of the NHS. They will try to get preferential access for their agricultural goods to the British agricultural market. Um, they will be very reluctant to give reciprocity on some of the trade interests that, uh, that the UK wants to pursue. And let's not forget that in a US-UK negotiation, there is one very obvious big dog on the block and one very obvious small dog. And I'm not worried that the U.S. will come out on top. Right. Fascinating. Thank you very much, Rem. And thank you for listening. As always, if you like the CER podcast, subscribe on iTunes and tweet us your questions and comments at CER underscore London with the hashtag CER podcast.
Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.